uh, I want us to take time to think about it uh, clearly and deeply this, this morning. And to do this, I'd like to give Mark chapter 16 as a foundational passage by which we are to set the tone and in, inform the imagination about the event of the, of the resurrection. We are not going to um, um, exposit or exegete uh, Mark uh, chapter 16, but we're using it to, for, as, a, as a foundational um, passage to, to set the tone for what we will be talking about. We will do a topical study on the resurrection. So I'll go from, um, to different passages with every point that I give. And as I see, it, it, it's important that we, we begin here um, as we think about the resurrection. Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to verse 8, and I'll read from the ESV. This is God's word. Let us hear him. Oh, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Let us read that together. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and, and, and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to one to, to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is God's word. Let us uh, pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and consider uh, the resurrection of Christ, this great and glorious truth that we stand on, we pray that you lift our hearts to yourself. In, 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 in worshiping and praising you, O oh God, in unrestrained worship. Pray that your name will be glorified this morning as you shape our minds and as you draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see, the resurrection of, of, of Christ is, is a critical subject to understand. It, it, it's, it's a critical, important uh, fact to, to, to know. And not only understand, but also believe. See, it is a vital part of the Christian faith. And, and I'll go as far as saying, if we were to remove the resurrection from the Christian faith, then the Christian faith will be nothing at all. 
the Christian faith will have nothing to stand on. Think about a chair. Um, that if a chair was to break one leg, it will fall down. This is the, the cornerstone of Christianity. This is what holds Christianity together. The resurrection of Christ. And, and if we were to lose, or if the resurrection of Christ was not, uh, was not true, then Christianity would not be true at all. What we will be doing here would be just in vain, as, as the Apostle Paul makes that argument in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it's very important, it's, it's vital, it is the life of, 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 of Christianity. The resurrection is the life of Christianity. I think about the body, that without the heart, the body cannot function. In other words, I am saying that the resurrection is the heart of Christianity. It is the heartbeat of Christianity. Without this heartbeat, we cannot have a living and, and vital uh, Christianity. Amen. So I want, this to, I want to draw your attention and ask the question this morning, what is the significance of the resurrection? Why is the resurrection important? And I, I want to highlight three reasons. Three reasons why the resurrection is important. That our joy in the finished work of Christ will increase. Three reasons why the resurrection is important. That our joy in the finished work of Christ will increase. The first reason I want to highlight is that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. We look at uh, Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to the Romans, and be, as he writes, he starts by giving a, a, a definition of the gospel. He starts by going, into, going deeply into, into describing what the gospel is. And he starts by saying that the gospel is, 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 is the gospel of God. Uh, the, the gospel that he promised uh, uh, beforehand through the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures. Then in verse 4, uh, he goes on to say the gospel in, in verse 3, he says, it is, it is, uh, 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 it's concerning the Son. It's, it's about Jesus Christ who was descendant from David according to the flesh. And look at verse 4. The, the, the point I want you to focus on. He says, and according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the resurrection serves to prove that Jesus is God. Uh, the, the, the simple way to explain what Paul is saying here, what Paul, what Paul means here, is that Paul is saying that Jesus was affirmed to, to be God openly, by, by openly exercising the power of the Holy Spirit when he rose from the dead. Do we understand that? He, when, when he rose again, according to Romans chapter 1 verse 4, he, he, it was an affirmation of that truth that he indeed is God. When he exercised power over death and rose again from the dead, he was proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is God himself. And this power can also be understood when we are convicted in our hearts by the very same Spirit. The Apostle Paul here uses the term Son of God. He says he was declared to be the Son of God in power. He uses this term 
Uh, now, you, you might object here uh, after hearing this term in verse 4 that no, what Paul is saying here is that he was declared to be just the son of God and, and not God, right? That, that, is, that is an objection that we hear from a lot of people. That No, he's not God. Uh, Paul is saying he's the son of God. In, in fact, that is what many religions who, who dispute the, the deity of Christ or, or the fact that Jesus Christ is God, uh, they, they say Jesus is just the son of God and, and not God. You see, in order to understand uh, what the term Son of God means, we must understand it the way Scripture uses it. We, we, we must understand it from the historical context of, of the Scriptures. We, we must not come with our own definitions. You see, our, our definition must be taken from God's dictionary. Amen? When we look at the, the epistles to the Hebrews regarding the, the deity of Christ. In, in the opening chapter, the author speaks of the Son as the radiance of the glory of God and, and the exact re representation of his nature. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he goes on to say, The Son through whom God created the world, verse 2, also upholds all things by the power of his word. In verse 3. And clearly, uh, this is something that only God can do, right? This is something only God can do to uphold everything by the power of his word. Everything stays in its place because he's upholding it. The, the moon stays where it is. The earth stays where it is. The, the stars stay where they are. They are not falling and crashing into the earth. They, there is no uh, spontaneous big bang. It, it, it is him who's upholding everything by the power of his word. And clearly this is something only God can accomplish. Only God can do. And, and you continue with this chapter in Hebrews chapter 1. In verses 8 and 9, it, it, it's more specific now. This is the quotation from um, Psalm 45 verse 6 um, in, in, in verses um, 8 and 9 of, of Hebrews chapter 1. The, the son here is addressed as God, right? Let, let, let us read it. Look at, look at it. Look at it. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 8 and 9. The son is addressed as God. He says, but of the son, he says, of the son, he says, your throne, what is the next word? Your throne, O God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he is saying this of the son, right? The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your love you have loved the righteousness and hated weakness, wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The, the argument here, when, when the writer of Hebrews uh, um, um, indicates that, that Jesus Christ is God, the, the argument that he's making, he wants to show that the Son is superior to angels. He is superior to Moses. He is superior uh, to, to all the high priests. He, 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 he is the, the supreme one. The reason he is superior is only one. It is because he is God. 
Amen? Therefore, the, the term son of God as used in the scriptures historically refers to Jesus Christ being God himself. It means that Jesus is God. Now, now one of the reasons why the resurrection is proof that Jesus is God is, is because during his earthly ministry, people rejected him as God. Well, whenever he referred to himself as the son of God, they understood that term very well. They would pick up stones to, to stone him, uh, saying he was blaspheming. Because the Jews understood the term son of God, no Jew ever referred to himself as the son of God in the same way that Jesus referred to himself. Even the, the prophets themselves in the Old Testament never referred to themselves as that. It is only the term son of man that they use uh, referring to themselves. Again, it is, it, they, 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 they would reject him whenever he said, I am son of God, and they would pick up stones wanting to kill him for blasphemy because he equated himself with God. And instead of seeing him as the Messiah, they thought of him as, as John the Baptist. Remember Matthew chapter 16? As John the Baptist, as, as, as uh, uh, Elijah. Others were thinking that he's Elijah. Others thinking that he is Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets, but not the Messiah. So Jesus Christ rises from the dead to prove that fact, that he is God. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, Jesus is preaching the word, and, and a crowd has surrounded him. And, and, and as we, we, we read through that narrative, we, we, we see four men who, who bring a paralytic man to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would heal this man. They, they, they come and then and, and the, the, the crowd has, has closed in Jesus and, and they go up and they open the roof. After opening the roof, when you look at it from the Greek, they drop the man inside. And Jesus looks at this man. What is the thing that they're expecting him to say? Be healed, right? He looks at this man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. When the scribes hear what Jesus said, they, they objected in their heart in, in verse 7. And they were saying, what does this man, why does this man speak like that? He, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their theology, to some extent, is accurate, right? It's accurate. It's an accurate theology because they were right about one thing, that mere man has, does not have the ability to forgive sin. Man does not have the ability to forgive sin. If you go and commit the worst kind of sin that you can ever think of and you come to me as your pastor and I say to you, I forgive you. Ah, your sins are not forgiven. Because I said I forgive you. It is only God. They, they understood in their theology that it is only God who forgives sin. Who clears sinners of their sinful record. Now if Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, logically it follows that he is what? He is God. Right? He, he is God. 
There's a logical connection to that. He is not just a mere man. Yes, he's 100% man. He's fully man, but he's also fully God with the authority to forgive sin. The ability to forgive sin. So, so his resurrection from the dead demonstrated clearly that he is God. There are so many arguments that we can use, but for the sake of time, we'll stop it there. We, we, we can declare, and when we understand that Jesus Christ is God, we can declare without a doubt that our God is not dead, but he is a living God, right? He is a living God. We serve a living God. We, don't, we do not serve a dead God. And our response to the, re- to, the, to the resurrected Christ must be that of unrestrained worship. It, it must be that of joy before him. Just like Thomas, when, when he saw the resurrected Jesus, after all the doubts, when they said, we saw him, and, and he said, no, I, I, I must see him myself. I must touch his hand. I must, I must touch his side. And, and when he sees the resurrected Christ standing before him, the only words that are able to come out of, your, of his mouth, the only vocabulary that he had in his head was these words, my Lord and my God. Ho curios mo. Ho, ho, ho theos mo. My Lord and my God. When he saw the resurrected Christ. So, so the, the resurrection first proves that Jesus Christ is, is God. And the second reason why the resurrection, the resurrection is significant or important is that it is for our justification. The resurrection is for our justification. Look at, look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 verse uh, 25. Paul has been speaking about justification by faith alone. And he continues to to make that argument by um, going back to to Abraham to show that Abraham was justified by faith, to show that David himself was justified by faith as well. Then he goes on to say about Jesus Christ that he says in verse 24, "But, uh, um, but for ours also... Let me, let me read from, from verses uh, 22. He says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is Abraham. But the, the, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who, who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he goes on to explain Jesus Christ. He says, who, in verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see that? He was raised for our justification. The, 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 the word justification means an act of God whereby he declares sinners uh, righteous based on the righteousness of Christ being counted on their behalf. So Christ looks at sinners who are believing in Christ and, 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 and what Christ has done for them. And, and, and God looks at them and declares them righteous based on their faith in Christ, not based on their works. Right? Is that clear? So the question that we might ask, uh, because this justification, uh, simply put, when we, when we explain it, it means to be made right with God. 
No, no, no. The question that must come to our minds is, is why do we need to be made right with God? Why, what is the need for us to be made right with God? And to find the, 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 the answer to this question, we must understand the nature of men and women. The, the nature of people. The, we must look at that. The, the assumption to the question, why do we need to be made right with God, is that we are not right. We are not in the right standing with God. In fact, if you are not in Christ, the, the, the Bible calls you an enemy of God. According to the scriptures, if you are not right with God, you are an enemy of God. When you look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, the Apostle Paul gives a clear description of the nature of men and women by charging that all men and women are under sin. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, as it is written, listen to this description, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of abs is under their lips. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But by these verses, the Apostle Paul unmasks the true nature of men and women. He, he shows the, the, the depth of the heart of a man, the depth of the heart of a woman. He shows how depraved they are. He shows how sinful they are, how they are haters of God, how they are not seeking after God, how they are not even seeking after good, how they do not have the fear of the Lord in their hearts. And we can see that today, right? We can see that in our world. We can see that in our government. We can see that on television, in, in soapies, in, 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 in sitcoms, when the name of the Lord is blasphemed, where, where they make the name of the Lord a joke, where they make a, a name of the name of the Lord something to laugh about and not so, someone to revere and someone to fall before and worship. We see that in our world. There's no fear of God in their eyes. There's no fear of God in their hearts. So Paul unmasked that. And, and because of sin, the Bible says you are subject to the punishment of God. What does it say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? The wages of sin is death. The, the, the only thing a sinner deserves before a holy God is condemnation. Well, when you look at Psalm 7, verse 11, it, it says God is a righteous judge. A God who is angry with sinners every day. We, we, we don't hear this kind of passages, right? We never hear them. We, we want sentimental things. Things that have feelings inside. 
things, emotional things, where, where we are being told that, oh, no, just, just love God because he loves you. It, it doesn't matter how much, how, how, how you live. It, it's just fine. It's, it's fine. Just enjoy life and enjoy yourself. But we go to the Bible, and the Bible tells us this, that God is a righteous judge who is angry with sinners every day. My God. They say we're living in the time of grace. We're living in the time of grace. I, I hear that argument. Yes, we're living in the time of grace. Grace was also there in the Old Testament. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, not the law. And the same God who was in the Old Testament, is the, who was holy, is the same God who's in, in the New Testament who is saying, be holy for I am holy. Don't tell me we're living in a time of grace in order to live in sin. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, Titus chapter 2. Think about that grace. God is a righteous judge. And because of this, that is why we need to have a right standing with God. Because if we don't have a right standing with God, our future is one of torment and pain in hell. That is why the cross is important. But moreover, uh, that is why the resurrection is important. It says, on the third day, I, 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 I can imagine the, the hearts of the disciples on that day. They are hiding from the Jews and the Romans. They are afraid that the ones they the one they trusted in, the one they, they followed, they the one they left everything for is in the grave. I, I can imagine the fear and, and the hopelessness in their hearts. I, I can imagine the, the, the weight of embarrassment they had upon themselves. I, I can imagine what they were going through. But then the Bible tells us that on the third day, ah, the grave was empty. It was not empty because they stole his body. They didn't have time to steal his body. They were afraid. It was not empty because he just disappeared. It was empty because, as Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was raised for our justification. Raised from the dead that you would have a right standing with God. And, and, and how does this resurrection of Christ put you in the right standing with God? How then do you become uh, right with God because Christ rose again? See, the resurrection of Christ is God's stamp of approval and acceptance of the sacrifice on the cross. It is evidence that God is pleased with the sacrifice. It is a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. Isaiah 53 says emphatically that it pleased God to crush him. It, it, it was the will of God to crush him. And, and I, I will go on to say it was also the will of God to raise him from the dead. In other words, what God was saying by, by raising Christ from the dead was saying this. He says, I am pleased by your sacrifice and, and show my approval of it by raising you from the dead. And if anyone, anyone puts their faith in your death, 
burial and resurrection, I will declare them righteous. I will justify them. They will be right with me. Amen. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. What does it say? It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You will be saved. You see, in other words here, it says, you, you, you will have a right standing with God. When we think about this passage, it, it, it is impossible for you to have a right standing with God if you do not believe in the resurrection. It, it, it's, it's impossible. The resurrection is the heart of salvation. It says you must believe that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You see, so the, the resurrection proves, first of all, that Jesus is God. And it goes on to prove um, that it is for our justification. And, and the, the third reason why it is important, the last reason why the resurrection is important, is because the resurrection is victory over sin and death. Victory over death and sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. Let us look at it briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. Paul says about Christ, for he must reign until he has put all things. Uh, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It is in the context of, of arguing for the resurrection. Paul mentions that the reign of Christ will be to the crushing defeat of his enemies. The last enemy being death. His, his resurrection is a clear, con, a, a, a clear demonstration that he has defeated death because the grave could not hold him. See, let me tell you a bit about the grave. The, the grave is a prideful thing. The, the grave has held men tight in its grip and, and never let go. It, it has held kings and slaves. It has held madam and maid. It has held them without letting them go. The, the grave laughs in the face of army commanders and great soldiers. It laughs in the face of great politicians. It is impossible for any human being to escape the power of the grave. And Solomon knows this fact very well when he writes in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 8. He says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. You see, the grave is not afraid of any man. It has challenged men and it has come out victorious. Think about the strongest man in the world, Samson. He fought death and he succumbed. The wisest man, Solomon. The most righteous man, Daniel. A man after God's own heart, David. They all succumbed to the power of the grave. Death has left children as often. Wives as widows, husbands 
as widowers. It leaves the church without a pastor. All are no match for the grave. The grave has taken millions and millions of people, both rich and poor, but it is never satisfied. Agur in Proverbs chapter, 10, chapter 30, verse 15 and 16, says the grave never says enough. It never says enough. Those who have, who have in the past few weeks or, 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 or days stood around in a freshly made grave and buried their loved ones can tell you what an enemy the grave is. It takes those you love the most and, and does not care whether you cry or not. And for this reason, the grave is prideful. It is the enemy that is feared the most, that many would be glad to avoid if they could. And if it could be bribed, many people will bribe death. Now imagine with me, if you would, Christ has just been laid in the grave. And the grave starts to sing songs of victory, saying, I have the one who is named King of Kings, teacher by his followers, and son of God. I have the one who drew multitudes and multitudes of people, who healed sicknesses, who made the blind to see, the lepers to be whole again. I have the one who, uh, who came with a the, with, with the donkey in Jerusalem and people were singing Hosanna, Hosanna to him. I have that one. It starts singing songs of victory, songs that were prideful. It starts singing about him. He says, no one is able to resist my power. And he is no different. Uh, what advice would you give the grave, if you would? What advice, if, if you were able to conversate with the grave, what would you say? Here's what I would say. Oh grave, be not proud. The one you now hold will rise again on the third day. And the grave responds, never. No one has ever resisted my power. I am reminded of the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18. He, said, he, he talks about laying down his life for the sheep and, and how he brings, it, uh, he, he brings his sheep together. He says, he says this, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. He says, no one can take my life. I, I am able to take it back again. See, when he rises from the grave, we see him exercising authority. The grave was stripped of his power and left embarrassed as Christ walked out in victory. The, the Nigerians have a word of exclamation. I think when, when Christ walked out of the grave, the grave looked at him and was like, Chineke, this is amazing. I have never seen 
such authority. You see, Romans chapter 6 verse 9 says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. No, not only does he demonstrate victory over death, but also over sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 to 57, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death and sin are like conjoined twins. You, you cannot have one without the other. And man in his foolishness welcomed sin in his life, but, but did not expect that sin will come with death. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spreads to all men because all sinned. Therefore, Jesus, by his resurrection, defeated the power of death, but not only that, but also the power of sin. Those who are in Christ are no longer under the dominion of sin. In Titus chapter 2 verse 14, it says, He redeemed from, he, he, he redeemed us from all lawlessness. In other words, his resurrection guarantees freedom from the bondage of sin. And now because the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates that he defeated the power of death and sin, we, we no longer fear death because we have victory in Jesus Christ. Because when he rose, your grave was changed from a final residence to a temporary housing. Death lost all the title deeds to your grave. Our song, when we think about that truth, whenever we breathe our last breath, is, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? We are no longer ruled and controlled by sin because its dominion has been defeated in our lives. Because we are united with Christ in his, resur in, in his resurrection, according to the word of God, we walk in newness of life. The, the resurrection is important because it proves that Jesus is God. It proves that it is for our justification. And it demonstrates that Jesus has defeated death and sin. And as we look, at, we look back at the finished work of Christ and how it has affected us, let me say one, this one last point. We are comforted that we serve a living God. Our God is not in the grave. He's not like Muhammad. He's not like Buddha. He's not like Lekhanyani. He's not like Mudisi. He's not like Shembe. Our God is a living God. Unlike other religions whose leaders die and have to be replaced by their sons. Jesus Christ, we will never see someone coming and saying, I am Jesus the second. There is only one Jesus who is the Alpha and Omega, who is the beginning and the end, who is the first and the last. He is King Jesus 
from first to last. Pastor and teacher John Ngovu says that Christianity is the faith of an empty grave. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, indeed, as we consider what you have accomplished through Christ, nailing him on the cross and him being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arathmathia and his enemies giggling and 